gotten a, a momentary glimpse of something amazing that lit a passion in you for a dream or a vision and to see that thing through, like maybe, maybe you went to a musical performance and you heard the skill of the musicians and you got a glimpse of what is possible if you will train and you will practice and, and it lit a fire under you to practice and to get better, or perhaps you saw someone's compassion for others, the, the poor or kids without a family or the lost, and because of what you saw, your heart was stirred, and you wanted to serve, and you wanted to give so that that vision that they had expressed with their lives could become a reality. Or maybe the reason you're so passionate about your work is because when you first learned about the field, you got a glimpse of how impactful, how life-changing, or how world-changing that kind of work could be, and so you wanted to participate, you wanted to do it. And of course, we've all had another kind of experience as well in which we were inspired by some possibility, but were subsequently distracted or discouraged Maybe you started to learn Spanish in the hopes of speaking fluently on vacation, and you got a, about as far as asking where the bathroom is, and even that was a little bit dicey. Or you envisioned yourself as a concert violinist, but Mary had a little lamb really tripped you up, and you couldn't get beyond that. Or you were inspired to get that beach body for the summer, and then you figured that just buying a beach shirt is a bit easier. And you got distracted from that vision of what you saw, what you thought was possible, and it never really came to fruition, or you were turned away from it for a while. The New Testament teaches that those who believe in Jesus are a kind of vision of the future. The Holy Spirit is a down payment or a guarantee of eternal life and of the life that is to come, of the reign of the kingdom of God. And the scripture teaches us that we're already participating in the future kingdom of God right now. Perhaps when you first believed, you got a glimpse or a vision of what eternal life looked like, and it was a beautiful thing for you. But then somewhat similar to your failed hobbies or interests, perhaps you got distracted by other pursuits in your life. Today we're back in 1 Corinthians in our series entitled Cross Church, and we're going to see that believers and the church as a whole are supposed to be living for the future kingdom of God and are supposed to provide a glimpse of that kingdom to the world. We're supposed to be a representation, like that glimpse of greatness or of compassion you had that inspired you toward impact or toward some kind of action. Believers are supposed to give the world a glimpse of what it looks like when God is king, when he's in control. However, like many of our failed hobbies and intentions, sometimes we fall short of what God intends for us. And so today's passage is going to help us see how to give a glimpse of God's kingdom to the world. And we're going to do this a little bit differently today than we typically do. We're going to start at the end of our passage, and we're going to work our way backwards through it. And as we do, we'll be working from the general toward the specific, from theology toward application. And so we should be a glimpse of the kingdom of God, of the coming kingdom. And in order to do that, the first thing is you must know who you are. If we're going to give the world a glimpse of God's kingdom, then we have to start by understanding who God has made us, who we are. You may have known at one time, but perhaps you've forgotten who God has made you to be. 
what it means that Christ has entered your life, what it means to be in Christ. Like the hobbies or passions that we spoke about a moment ago, we may have begun with intensity, may have started with a fire for God and saw what was possible, but sometimes we lose that passion along the way because we are distracted by the constant barrage of anxiety and culture or we're discouraged by the challenges. There's a little Texaco gas station just off Interstate 80 in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska. And I often visit this place in my mind when I'm discouraged. I was riding along with my dad when I was 12 or 13 years old, and we stopped and we met a pastor from another town at this little gas station. We were standing outside, out in the back of the gas station. My dad and this other pastor friend were talking, and I didn't know the man very well, hadn't really talked to him very much before. He didn't know much about me, didn't know my dreams or what I felt like God was doing in my life. But I remember that as they conversed, he turned and he looked at me and he said something along the lines of, the Lord is going to use you as a pastor. And that was a glimmer for me, a glimpse of what God wanted to do with my life. And when I'm discouraged, I often go back to the backside of a dingy gas station in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska, and I remember what God said to me, who he said I would be. You can do the same thing, because at some point in your life, and it may not have been the backside of a gas station, though it might have been, but at some point in your life, if you're a believer in Jesus, God called you. You were stuck in your sin, you were separated from God, you may have been filled with shame and fear or loneliness, maybe your marriage was in shambles or you were a slave to an addiction and God called you out of that. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Now, it might not have been at a gas station, it could have been in your friend's station wagon, or in a hotel room where you picked up one of those Gideon Bibles, or kneeling in your living room, or when you responded to a message at this church, or at a church like this. And at that moment, you responded to God's call by faith, and when you did, something supernatural happened. Using three theological terms, Paul reminded the Corinthian believers of what happens when you respond by faith to the message of salvation through Jesus. He says, first, you were washed. If you've been out working hard in the yard all day, you had to apply sunscreen, you had to spray on bug spray, you mowed the lawn and you were sweating profusely and you've got that one patch in your lawn that you can't get to grow grass and so when you mow over it, it sprays dust up everywhere and when you combine sweat and dust, it's that cakey, nasty mud kind of nastiness all over your skin and you've been out working in that all day and you've been pulling weeds, you've got dirt under your fingernails. What's the first thing you do when you go inside? You lay down on the couch and you take mom's new throw pillows and you rub your head in them, right? No, you go and you take a shower, right? You wash yourself off. Your life before you knew Jesus was like that. 
You were covered with the filth of sin and selfishness. You were covered with worldliness. You were separated from God. You were covered with the grime of seeking salvation in your own strength and in your own power. You were covered in the shame from how people have hurt you, and you were covered with the shame of how you've hurt other people. You had been ignoring God. You'd been pursuing your own ways, and unlike your shower after your yard work, Sin is not a kind of dirt that you can wash off of yourself. And so you were separated from God, like a child who isn't allowed inside because she's covered in mud. You were cut off from God. But look at verse 11 again. And such were some of you, but, but you were washed. There is only one remedy for the filth of sin, and that is faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Isaiah chapter one, verse 18 says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. And while Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 wasn't referring to baptism specifically when he said you were washed, Baptism is a picture of this washing that takes place spiritually in your life. By faith in Jesus, you have been washed. The sin in your past is gone. It is forgiven. And this is not make-believe. God's word is not that you should behave as if the guilt of your sin is gone, even though it isn't really. God's word does not teach us to fake it until we make it. God's word says that he really has washed us, that he has forgiven our debt. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. You were washed. And not only were you washed, but you were sanctified. This means that you were made holy. You've been set apart for God. You are a saint. When your mom calls you her little angel, nobody believes it. We all know better. We've seen you. Moms have rose-colored glasses, and that's a good thing. It's a gift from God, but I'm not your mom. So I can tell you that you're no angel, no matter what your mom thinks of you. And look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. The Apostle Paul writes, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul called the people of this church sanctified or holy, and he called them saints. Now, usually when you call somebody sanctified or when you say they're a saint, you mean that they're particularly holy or righteous or good in their lives, the bad habits, the wrong thinking of this world has been removed from them over time by the Holy Spirit. But we've already seen multiple times that this was not the case for many in the Corinthian church. Their church was split by divisions. They were using the wisdom of the world instead of God's wisdom. They were arrogant against Paul, God's apostle. They tolerated gross sexual immorality in the church. As we continue for, through 1 Corinthians, we will see that they had people visiting prostitutes, participating in idolatrous ceremonies, excluding and snubbing one another at church, and more. No one would look at this church and think, there's a bunch of sanctified people, there's a bunch of saints. Nobody would think that, and yet somehow at the beginning of this epistle, the Apostle Paul writes that they are sanctified and that they are saints, and he tells them here, you were sanctified. 
We all know that your mom is biased when she called you her little angel. But God calls you a saint, not based on what you've done or any delusion that he's under on what your past has been like. He calls you a saint based on what Christ did when he died for your sin and he rose again. And not only were you washed and sanctified, but the Bible also says, Paul writes, that you were justified. God is the ultimate judge. So if he has forgiven you, you truly are forgiven. You now have a relationship with God. That is, if you, that it's as if you'd never sinned. You're right with God. You are just before him because in Christ you stand and Christ has not sinned. So you stand righteous, holy, justified in him. And consider how this washing, sanctification, and justification took place. Paul says it was done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is by the authority of what Jesus did when he died on the cross for you and God raised him from the dead and by the spirit of God who lives in you. And who did those things? The implication is that God the Father did them. So God the Father washed you, sanctified you, and justified you because of the authority of what Christ had done when he died on the cross and rose again, and by the Holy Spirit's presence in your life, the whole Trinity is in on this. They're all working together to bring about righteousness and God's salvation in your life, and they will accomplish what they set out to do. And if we're going to be a glimpse of heaven, you have to know who you are. Don't forget what God, Father, Son, and Spirit have accomplished for you. Don't fake it until you make it. Don't pretend to be something that you're not. That's not the point of the passage. In fact, the point is quite the opposite. God has done these things for you. You don't do them, you didn't earn them, and you can't earn them. God has done them for you. Now you should live out that reality in your life because you actually are washed, you actually are sanctified, and you actually are justified because of what God has done. So for a minute, I wanna wanna go off topic and and talk to you about your past. And I wanna talk to you about it in a particular way on Mother's Day because as I was thinking about Mother's Day, I, I don't often preach the typical Mother's Day sermon, okay? It's just, it's not always what I do, but, but, as I was thinking about 1 Corinthians 6 and Mother's Day and about what's happening in our culture, I felt like there was something that, that maybe we should talk about that maybe needs to be said, and it's this. As believers in Jesus, we believe that God is sovereign over life and that God gives life and that it is only really God's right to take life away except in very special certain circumstances in which God has given authority to an earthly judge or government for a particular reason, usually for the punishment of some kind of sin. Other than that, we believe it is in God's hands and that it should be left there. And this relates to what's going on in our culture regarding abortion. And, and you all know, I don't have to describe the circumstance of the Supreme Court leak and all that stuff that's going on, but the backlash from it has been that uh, people are up in arms. And as believers in Jesus Christ and in, in, in this church, and I believe that believers in Jesus Christ, generally speaking, that we believe that life should be protected and that abortion is wrong, that it shouldn't be something that is done in our culture, that it shouldn't be something that is done in our society. 
And the reason we believe that, and what I think is so important for us at this particular juncture in our, in our history, is that we would understand some of the rationale for why that's so, um, and, and some of the rationale that's coming against that. You know, for a long time, the, the argument had been that, uh, you know, it wasn't really a baby inside a mother's womb. Of course, Christians disagree with that. Psalm 139 says, I was knit together in my mother's womb. I'm beautifully and wonderfully made. You know the plans and the purposes. Before my, my days, you knew what they, would, what they would hold. And so we believed for a long time that life in the womb is precious, it's sacred, because it is actually a human life. And currently, the, the arguments have shifted a little bit, and some people who are advocates of abortion are no longer really arguing that it's not a human life because, I mean, it's obviously not something other than a human life. What other kind of life could it be? And so they've shifted their argument to simply say, well, the mother's life is more important and she should get to decide what to do with her body as if this is some kind of invasion of her personal freedoms. And I just wanted to say that as believers in Jesus, we believe that we ought to glorify God in our bodies. And that our bodies are not something that are merely to be used for our own selfish purposes. And so the narrative in our culture has shifted to say, well, it's just, it's about the, the mom's ability to do whatever she wants with her body. But of course we know that there are a number of areas in life where you don't just get to do whatever you want with your body. But more than that, we believe as Christians that we give up the right to just live our lives according to our own passions and desires, and in fact, not just give up as if it's a sacrifice, but we actually get to learn how to walk in God's ways. And that actually he has a better way for us to use our lives and our bodies than the world has, and, and so we get to do that. And so while this narrative has shifted in our culture, I wanna encourage us as a church that we would know how to speak to people about this, and one of the things is this, that God has a purpose for your life and that one of those purposes for life and for sexuality is motherhood and that motherhood should be valued and that if your argument is that, well, I wanna do what I want to do and this is an invasion, it's gonna change me, yeah, that's motherhood. That's what happens with motherhood and that is a beautiful, God-given thing because that change does indicate a sacrifice that is made on behalf of another individual, another person, and God intended that to be a reflection of his own love and how he cares for us. And so we might have to begin talking to people differently about this. The second thing I wanted to say is this, in that how we talk to people is important because as Christians, we know that we were washed. And some of the people that we will encounter may have pasts that are filled with the pain of abortion. And the way that they know how to try to deal with that pain is to try to justify it by saying it was my right and it should be everyone else's right as well. But the Bible offers another way to deal with that pain, whether it's the pain of a past abortion in your life or whether you're talking to somebody who's experienced that or whether we're talking about in your life something totally different, something from your past that brings you shame or that brings you hurt or that brings you pain. The scripture, God's word, the gospel gives us another way to deal with it and it's this. You were washed. That by faith in Jesus, 
what was done in the past is actually totally forgiven, as if, as if it was gone, as if it never happened, as if God has totally changed and wiped those things out of your life because he has. The guilt of those things is done because of what Jesus did. They don't carry over. It's not, well, I've been forgiven, but, no, it's I lived this way, but I was washed. So if you're dealing with the the pain of the past in your own life, whether it's because of of feelings about an abortion that you had or, or some other sin in your life that once characterized you, the Apostle Paul and the Word of God would say this to you, such were some of you, but you were washed. And so don't live in the pain and the shame of the past Live in the hope of what God has done for you and live a washed life because God has cleansed you so that you might be able to walk in his goodness, in his freedom, in his redemption, and in his love. Being a glimpse of the coming kingdom starts with understanding who God has made you. But if God has washed you, if he sanctified you, if he has justified you, that's gonna make a real difference in your life. Have you seen these commercials for uh, becoming a Scottish lord or lady. Anybody get that for your mom on Mother's Day? Just kidding. You should, if you did, don't raise your hand. You'll spoil the surprise. You can purchase this souvenir plot of land in Scotland on some nature preserve, and they'll send you a letter that declares that you're a lord or you're a lady. Now, do you think that getting that title will actually change anything in your life? You think you can show up to, like, Scotland and You've got some real authority. You can stand on your like eight inch square plot and you're the, you know, you're the lord of your, your little plot of land. Do you think you get any real authority from that? Do you suppose that you'll suddenly have authority because of a certificate you purchased online for $49.99? I mean, do you, do you seriously expect your husband and kids to start calling you lady? I mean, I guess you could ask them for that for Mother's Day, but generally, I don't think so. That's probably not going to happen. But That's not what we're talking about when I say that you should know who you are. By the Father's authority and love demonstrated through the death and resurrection of Jesus and applied to your life by the Holy Spirit, God has not granted you a title, but has actually washed you, sanctified you, and justified you. And it's important that we get the order right here. Because grace means that God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. But by God's grace, we don't remain who we are either. We have actually been remade. And that's where Paul's warning in verses 9 to 10 comes in. It says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We were once unrighteous, but now God has justified us. That righteousness isn't nominal. It's not just a name. It's not just a title. It is real. And so we must not be deceived into thinking that God has called us righteous but we can live as if we're unrighteous, no big deal, because that's not what God has done. Notice again that Paul says, do not be deceived. So many people 
who call themselves Christians have been deceived into thinking that they're good enough, and that their lifestyles, even though they're unrighteous, that they're, they're gonna be good enough for God, though they make no attempt at repentance, though they are not real and sincere in their relationship with God, we should note that Paul's not speaking here about a Christian who falls into temptation and then repents and moves forward. He's not talking about the the times where even as Christians we sin and then we repent, we recognize what we've done is wrong and we change our minds and actions and we move forward in our relationship with God. He's speaking about people who believe that God has saved them even though they haven't repented, even though they're gonna continue to live a lifestyle of sin as if it's no big deal. They are in danger. Some even go so far as to think that they're free to sin because of God's grace. Now the list that Paul makes, it's not intended to be exhaustive. Instead, he mostly includes items related to things that he addresses in this letter. In chapter five, he addressed a matter of sexual immorality. He's gonna address other matters later in chapter six and seven dealing with sexuality. And so he included a number of sexual sins like sexual immorality, which is just kind of a general idea of lust or of of, of, uh, sexual behavior that is uh, demeaning or degrading or, or, you know, pornography in our day and age would be included in that, or uh, flirtatious and manipulative behavior would be included in that. He includes things like adultery and homosexual sex. Later in 1 Corinthians, he addresses a Christian's participation in celebrations at idols' temples, and so he includes idolatry. We're gonna see in just a moment that he addresses an issue of defrauding and greed in the church. So he includes thievery, greed, and swindling. Drunkards and revilers are two general terms that he chooses to include, but you could include any lifestyle of sin in this list, and there are other lists throughout the New Testament that include other lifestyles of sin as well that put a person in danger of judgment. And there are a lot of people deceived by a number of the things Paul lists today. Too often, people who take the name Christian are involved in lifestyles of unrepented sexual immorality. They flirt and they lust and they look at pornography and they use their sexuality to manipulate and they hide these things and think that it's not a matter that affects their standing or relationship with God. Drive down just about any road in the city and you can find churches affirming people in a homosexual lifestyle or lifestyles that otherwise contradict God's intention for the the human sexual relationship to be within marriage between a man and a woman and, and leading people to believe that they can do what the Bible forbids but still be saved. Some try to say that what Paul means by homosexuality is actually pederasty or or an abusive homosexual relationship. However, the word pederasty, which is having sex with a child or a younger person, it actually derives directly from the Greek. So Paul knew this word and he didn't use it. So it's very unlikely that that's what he means here. Further, the two terms that he does use to describe homosexuality refer to both the passive and, actual, and active partners in a homosexual act and both are condemned showing that Paul is not discussing an abusive homosexual relationship, but homosexual acts in general. Many who bear the name Christian live selfish lives. They live lives of greed. They live lives that are turned inward. They are not generous, but lovers of pleasure, lovers of money. Some even excuse their greed because they think they have superior moral judgments compared to other people. 
And God calls this love of money idolatry. And those who worship at the altar of greed will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, Paul says. God did not wash you so that you might continue to flaunt him in the name of personal autonomy or identity. God did not sanctify you so that you might again offer yourself on the idol of greed or sexual immorality. God did not justify you so that you could justify your malicious and hateful actions toward others. Rather, he intends that you would become what you are and he's given you everything that you need to, that you need in order to do it. Christian, this is not intended to cause you to doubt your salvation. It's intended to cause you to live from your salvation. Do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? If you're walking consistently in sin rather than submitted to God and seeing victory over that sin, you need to be warned. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither God's grace nor your belief in Jesus is an excuse for continuing in sin that is going to destroy you, for flaunting it as if it's no big deal. Again, I wanna be clear, I'm not talking about if you had a failure and you have repented and you're moving forward. I'm not talking about if you have a struggle with sin that you recognize is wrong and, and you're trying to move forward in that with God, knowing what the right thing to do is. I'm talking about if you have resigned yourself or willingly said, hey, God has forgiven me, so what I choose to do with my life is no big deal. I can be what I want to be. I can, I can use my body the way I want to use it. That's just not true. Because if God's redemption in your life is real, then you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, your heart was changed, and you're going to want to begin to live a washed, sanctified, and justified life before him. Your heart's desire is going to grow by the presence of the Holy Spirit in you to represent God's kingdom here and now so that others can see what that looks like. Neither God God's grace nor your belief in Jesus is an excuse for sin. And so, if you're living in sin, repent. Because God is gracious and he will wash you. He's waiting to sanctify you, to make you holy, not in name only, but to make you holy in your life. He is willing to make you righteous before him. If you are going to be a glimpse of God's kingdom, if our church is going to be a glimpse of God's kingdom, then we can't be deceived. We will only shine if we actually live as God has made us. And I'm glad that I could bring you this lighthearted sermon on Mother's Day. You were probably, you probably thought you were going to get some sweet sermon where the points were like an acrostic of mother. Like you can take a look at this one if you can show that. Yeah, like amazing, loving, strong, happy, selfless, creative. Like that's the sermon you wanted on Mother's Day. I know, I'm sorry, it's not really my style. And I stayed up all night trying to make 1 Corinthians 6 fit in there somewhere. It doesn't work, it just can't, it can't shove it in there so I didn't try. We should be a glimpse of the coming kingdom and in order to do that, you must know who you are and you must not be deceived. But let's get practical with this. Verses one through eight address the problem that prompted Paul to write these things in the first place. He says this, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. 
Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Apparently what sparked Paul to write about not being deceived and understanding who they were in Christ was a dispute between two people in the church that, was, that had led to a lawsuit. He doesn't tell us what the specifics of the issue were, but it's safe to assume that it was a civil and not a criminal dispute because Paul uses the word defrauded and he included the ideas of swindling or thievery, which kind of had this deceitful tone to them in the lists that we read just a moment ago. And it's likely that one Christian brother had lied to or manipulated or otherwise treated another brother in Christ unfairly, and the second man was seeking recompense before a secular judge. And Paul's two major concerns are that the Corinthians have so little self-understanding about who they are in Christ, and that this action destroys the church's reputation before the world's eyes. God has called believers as citizens of heaven, a kingdom that has not yet appeared as it will be on this earth. It's not yet come in its fullness, but it is being revealed right now through the church. And when that kingdom comes in fullness, when Jesus returns, when the reign of Christ comes, Daniel uh, 7, 27 says, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And Revelation 20, verse 6 teaches, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, Paul's intention here wasn't to give us details as to what that judgment will include, what it will look like, but he is affirming we're going to reign with Christ, and part of reigning with Christ over the world is that we'll reign over angels, and that includes judgment. And since that's our future, if we're going to judge the world alongside Christ, and we're going to judge angels and we're to, we're to be a pot, deposit of that future right now in the present, how can it be that the church would allow two brothers to go settle a dispute before a secular court? That judge had no standing in the church. He wasn't a believer. He did not know the ways of Christ. He did not share the values of the people of God. If believers are going to reign with Christ over everything, how could they be incompetent even now to make a judgment about an everyday matter when they would judge angels. What a shame that the church so often looks to the world for direction. Our eyes are so often cast down to ordinary things and we forget who we are in Christ. We become enamored with the power of success in the world and, the, and we forget that the ways of the world are passing away and that often we will participate in the judgment of the very things that we're looking to emulate in our lives. Verse seven says that to have a lawsuit at all was a defeat for the church. It was a defeat because it meant that one brother had wronged another brother. That's a defeat. But it was also a defeat because it meant that the brother who had been wronged didn't know who he was in Christ and was not obeying Jesus' commands. And he was willing to sacrifice the reputation of the church for personal recompense. If we are worldly-minded, we're gonna find verse seven not only hard, but we might even think about it as immoral. Because Paul says this, why not rather suffer wrong? 
Why not rather be defrauded? That seems unthinkable. We are all about our rights, our private property, our autonomy, our freedoms. When someone wrongs us, we wanna make sure everyone knows that that person wronged us, that we weren't in the wrong, it was the other person. How many of you all wanna be right in an argument? Come on, admit it. You wanna be right. You want the other person you're arguing with to know that you are right. We want what we deserve. We have been too influenced by a greedy, combative culture. Recall that Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Then if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Would it not be better to be wronged but be obedient to Jesus? Would it not be better to be defrauded but trust that the Lord is your provider and preserve the integrity of the church? Instead, this man was going to trot internal issues into the public eye and so distort the image of the gospel. And this is not to say that he should have merely buried them. He should have taken them to the church and not outside. This is where knowing who we are meets the road of real life. Because if you are in Christ, it's gonna affect how you handle real life situations, not just ambiguous theoretical ones. It's gonna affect how you treat an enemy or someone who wrongs you. It will change how you handle problems. It will mean that you do it from a place of trust in God and love for his people and assurance that your future is secure so you don't have to go trying to grasp things in the present as if you've gotta get what's yours right now because this is all that there is. No, you have an assurance as a son or a daughter of God that he has given you eternal life. You have been sanctified and justified. You're gonna live with him forever. And so you don't have to grasp at things in this life, but instead you can represent Jesus even when others' grasping behavior takes something that you feel like belongs to you. You can let God be your shield. And this practical living in light of who we are in Jesus Christ is not just for when someone wrongs us or when someone wants to sue us. It applies to sex because if you're in Christ and understand that marriage and sex are designed to be demonstrations of how Christ loves the church and how his bride, the church, responds to his love, then you'll seek to preserve that within marriage. It will lead you toward generosity because you know that God owns it all and he's promised you eternal life and so you can use what you have for his kingdom and share it with others without fear. And as such, being a glimpse of the coming kingdom is not a fanciful idea, it's a practical idea. If you're not deceived and you remember who you are, it will change the everyday things of life as you learn to become what you are in Jesus. We should be a glimpse of the coming kingdom of God. We've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified. So don't be deceived by the ways of the world. Instead, become what you are by applying the truth about Jesus to your everyday life. It could be today that as we spoke about being washed, sanctified, and justified, you were interested and your life may be characterized by the kinds of sin that everyone in our culture is so eager to promote, so eager to affirm, but which you've discovered in your life that in spite of their affirmations, that kind of activity, that kind of behavior, that kind of sin leads to destruction. 
And if you're aware that you need to change, that you need to be washed, then I have good news for you and bad news for you. The good news is that there is a way to be clean. The bad news is you can't do it yourself. Actually, that's good news too, but many people don't like that part of the news. They don't like the idea that they can't do it themselves because they want to be in control. God sent his son, Jesus, to be our savior. Jesus gave everyone a burning glimpse of what heaven is like, what it looks like to live in relationship with God under his rule, but people love the darkness. And so, as Jesus went around, he offended many people's expectations. He offended their greed, he offended their pride, and as a result, they had Jesus arrested and crucified. But even in doing that, they were only accomplishing what God intended for Jesus' life. Because when Jesus died, he died for you. He was the sacrifice for your sin so that you could be right with God. He was a sacrifice for your sin because sin leads to death and separation from God. And when Jesus paid the penalty of sin, God raised him from the dead on the third day. And now God offers you salvation. But he doesn't offer it because you've washed yourself doesn't offer it because you sanctify yourself, you make yourself better because you decide, I wanna be clean, but I want to be in control too, and so I'm gonna do this myself. No, God offers salvation one way and one way only. He offers it through Jesus, and that means surrender. It means surrendering the idea that you are gonna be in control, in charge, and able to wash yourself, and instead believing that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God will make me clean means that you surrender the control of what you wanted, the passions and desires of your body and of your life, and you say, I've lived this way, and it has led to death, but I need to be sanctified, set apart for God, for his way, and that will lead to life. And, and if, if you are thinking that you're going to do that yourself, you won't, because that sanctification only happens through Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. And the good news is that because of what Jesus did, God wants to wash you. He wants to sanctify you. He wants to make you clean. So today, if you've you've listened and you've, you've recognized that you need to be washed, you need to be cleansed, you need to be justified, what I'm inviting you to this morning is not a title. We're not gonna sell you a title for $49.99. You're not gonna become a, a Christian and we'll give you a certificate and then you're all good, you can just kinda keep doing what you're doing. That's not the point. It's not nominal. What God offers to you is that if you will submit and surrender your life to Jesus by faith in him, then you'll die with him. Like Jesus died on the cross, you'll die to your past, your shame, your pain and the sin that separated you from God. But when you believe in Jesus, you'll also live with him. And just as Christ was raised from the dead on the third day by the power of God the Father, you too will walk in new life. So today, if you recognize you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, but you need to begin it, you need to be washed, you need to be cleansed, sanctified, you need to know you're right with God this morning, then he offers that to you, not as a title, but as a changed life by faith in Jesus. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? If you don't have that relationship with God, 
through Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do two things. The first thing in a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. And then I'm going to ask you at the end of service if you would come forward. And so I'm going to ask you to do two things. I don't want to bait and switch. I don't want to have surprise you and think that I'm asking you to do something new that I didn't tell you about before. So I'm going to ask you to do those two things. The first one is this. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus... And you know today and recognize I need to be cleansed. I need to be washed. My sin needs to be forgiven. And I want to be right with God. Maybe you recognize that you've claimed the title Christian. But it was about as good as the title Lord or Lady bought from an internet company. And what you have really done is you've slapped a sticker on the outside of a life that was not changed. And today you're recognizing I need God to wash me. I don't need a title. I need the Holy Spirit to work in my life to cleanse me and save me. So if that's you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, and today you're recognizing I need to be washed, I need to be cleansed. I wanna pray with you. So if that's you, would you just lift up your hand so that we can pray together? Is there anybody like that? You don't already have that relationship with God through Jesus? You're not confident that you are washed, that you're sanctified, that you're justified, but you wanna begin that this morning and receive that work in your life. Thank you. Is there anybody else? I'm going to wait for just a moment because I want you to have the opportunity that God gave you this morning. You're not just here because your mom made you come on Mother's Day. You're here because God arranged for you to be here so you could hear the good news about Jesus. So if you don't have that relationship with him and you know you need it, don't wait till tomorrow. Don't think I'll fix this myself. That's not the gospel. And if that's what you've gotten out of this morning, then either I've not done a good job or your heart has been hardened and you need to soften it before God today. Don't think I'm gonna leave and fix this. I'll wash myself. You will not. That's not salvation. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus and you need to begin that today so that you can be washed and cleansed, would you just lift up your hand? Is there anybody else? If you're joining us online and you wanna be washed and cleansed, Text the word HOPE to 413-300-6061 so we can contact you, pray with you, and help you understand what it means to follow Jesus. For us, I'm going to pray this prayer, and this prayer doesn't save you, but if you raised your hand this morning, then I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer along with me in your heart and make the words of this prayer your prayer. Confess this before Jesus. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I come to you. And I believe the good news that Jesus died and he rose again. And today I recognize that I have not been living a washed, sanctified, justified life. I recognize that I'm far from you. I've been living in my sin, separated from God, and I want to be cleansed today. I want the shame and the guilt of my past to be gone. I confess it to you, and I believe that Jesus is Lord and that you raised him from the dead. And today I ask you to forgive me and to give me new life in Jesus. Make me new in you even now. And Lord, I surrender to you. I surrender to you in faith. I'm not trying to clean myself up, but I'm trusting that you have cleansed me and that you are going to help me to now live a life consistent with what you do in me today. I love you. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, we pray and we believe. Amen.
Amen. Church, would you stand with me? I'm going to ask if our prayer partners, if you're on our prayer partners team, or if you are one of our deacons or deaconesses, if you would go ahead and come forward and stand. And I want to ask you to respond in a couple of ways. Before you run out the door to grab your coffee, moms, or, or you take your mom out there to grab hers, I'm going to ask you to do uh, two things. One, if you gave your life to Christ for the first time this morning, or you wish that you would have, would you come before you leave and pray with one of our pastors or prayer partners? The second thing is this. If you're a believer in Jesus and you carry that name, and your life is characterized by sin, there's freedom for you in Jesus. He's washed you, he's sanctified you, he's justified you, but he also wants you to live like that's true. He wants you to be free. And so if you have felt the bondage of sin in your life, if you've fallen into some kind of sin and you're struggling, even though you'd like to, you, through repentance, you, you, you've, you've not been able to get out of that for some reason, I'm gonna ask you to take a bold step of faith and if you would come and you would just receive prayer, asking God to help make you what you are, washed, sanctified, and justified before him. I'm gonna pray and when I'm done praying, if that's you and you need those things in your life, would you come before you leave and receive prayer? Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you've done, and thank you for the good news. We're washed, we're sanctified, and we are justified in the name of Christ Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that these things are true in us. And now, Lord, we just ask that you would help us to live like they're true. Lord, help us to live as if these are the realities of life and no longer submit ourselves to the lusts of our flesh or as slaves to sin, but to submit ourselves to you to walk in your righteousness. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would root out of us the ways of the world and the ways of our flesh and you would help us instead to walk in true righteousness and holiness. We love you, Lord. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being at church this morning. Happy Mother's Day. Enjoy the time with your mom. If you need prayer, please come. Otherwise, we will see you again on Wednesday night. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.